This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Protestantism in, uh, by about 1545 seemed that it was well on its way to winning all of Europe north of the Alps, that is north of Italy. In 1545, it looked like the Protestants were going to win and win big north of Italy. Protestantism was firmly planted in Germany, France, Scandinavia, Switzerland, England, and Scotland. I mean, Protestantism... As of 1545, in, the, in about the 20 or 25 years since Luther started, had made enormous progress. It had gone from nothing to having ha made major inroads in six, seven countries. Major countries. And all of these countries, I mean, France eventually, as you know, uh, went and turned back to Catholicism. But there was a time, there was a time when it looked as if France could very well have gone Protestant. Uh, they even had a guy who was ostensibly a Protestant become the king, Henry IV. Uh, but there was so much opposition that he decided to, for the sake of political expediency, to convert and become a Catholic. But uh, there, was a, there was a time, even in France, that it was possible that at least the hopes of Protestants were that it could actually become a Protestant country as well. But after 1560, in the next 20, 15 years or so, Protestantism gained only one new nation, Holland. So from 1520 to 1545, they make, they're making massive advances. But then things start to slow down a little bit. And after 1560, they basically gain only one new country. That is Holland. And that's after a major civil war. What was it about post-1560 that led to this slowdown in this steady march of Protestantism throughout Europe? Well, what stopped that was a revitalized Roman church. A revitalized Roman church. Re-energized. And this new, revitalized, aggressive, underscore that word, aggressive Catholicism is called the Counter-Reformation. It's a very descriptive label because it says they're fighting back. And that really gets going uh, after 1560. 
This is the Catholic Church as a whole. Roman Catholicism, European-wide. The Counter-Reformation made some changes. They initiated a program of internal reform. And they also set forth a new doctrinal uh, statement. In other words, the Council of Trent. They redefine themselves theologically. Uh, it's, it's well understood that the medieval church had left a number of doctrines that were somewhat ambiguous. And Trent defines Catholicism once and for all. There's no question about that. Trent was crucial. And, it, and Trent was, by and large, a reaction against this emergent Protestantism. The Counter-Reformation uh, unleashed powerful forces in Europe. Just when you thought the Protestants were on the verge of sort of winning, there's a counter-attack by the Catholics and it ends up in major world war, in effect. And you see that perhaps the epitome of this military conflict that issues forth from the doctrinal conflict is in the famous Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648. I'll say more about that later. But that was a bloody, bloody war that involved a whole range of nations. Now... One of the things, still an introduction now, that I need to talk about, because if you read any books on the Reformation, Counter-Reformation, you're going to encounter a couple of different terms, different labels. Uh, Sometimes people will talk about the Counter-Reformation, and others will talk about the Catholic Reformation. Those labels have a significance. So what is the difference between the Counter-Reformation and the Catholic Reformation? The Catholic Reformation refers to that reforming impetus, that reforming impulse that arose from within Catholicism. And it arose just before or simultaneously with the emergence of Luther and Protestantism. The Catholic Reformation is a label. It's a term. You will encounter this in your reading. It is, in some sense, the prevailing sort of ecumenical uh, slant on church history interpretation these days. People use this term because it, 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 it... It's less aggressive, it's a little more of a passive term, and it seems to give some credence to uh, the Catholic Church for having initiated some of its own reforms. Uh, My opinion is that this is a valid label, but what happens is some of the ecumenical concerns impel and and, and, uh, compel some modern uh, scholars to take it too far. So what I do is I use both terms, Counter-Reformation and Catholic Reformation. And I say they are, they are distinct, they're separate, but not distinct. 
I see a relationship between these two. I'll try to explain that. So, the label, Catholic Reformation, had the basic idea there is of a reforming impulse from within Catholicism that occurred either just before the Reformation or simultaneously with the Reformation period. Why? Where did this impulse come from? According to those who talk about a Catholic Reformation, they want to stress that the Protestant Reformation was not the primary cause of this impulse for self-reform. but rather an internal sensitivity to the problems that existed. In other words, when I say Catholic Reformation, what I'm saying is that there were people, and there's no question about this, there were high-ranking clerics who looked around their church and they said, there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a problem, and we as leaders need to do something about it. And they made efforts in that direction. Those efforts uh, didn't bear immediate fruit. Now, the term counter-reformation. Another label. Well, that obviously suggests that the impulse to reform the church the Catholic Church was primarily stimulated by factors outside the church, namely Luther and Calvin and the radicals, etc. It was a reaction. It's a counter punch. It's a response to the Protestant Reformation. Now, it's clear, at least in my mind, and I've labeled this entire section the Counter-Reformation because I think that's the, the more important stress. Uh, it is more significant. And indeed, the Counter-Reformation essentially stopped the progress of the, the spread of Protestantism after 1560, by and large. It was very effective on the whole after 1560. These two movements, and I see them as two movements that are separate but not distinct. Uh, let me say it this way. These are two movements which may be distinguished but are not to be entirely separated. I think the later movement, the Counter-Reformation, drew from the earlier Catholic Reformation. Okay, let me look at, first of all, what I think is essentially chronologically earlier and what I call the Catholic Reformation. Uh, again, I've already alluded to this before in the earlier comments, passing comments, but I really do think that Protestants have failed utterly to recognize the existence of this internal reform movement motivated by very genuine concerns to right the wrongs that existed. Protestants are just simply not very well aware of this, and so I do take a little time to remind us all that there, was, there were those who were concerned about this. One of the earliest, and we're talking now 16th century, there had been earlier calls for reform, but we're going to just stay in the 16th century, was the so-called, well, it was called, the Fifth Lateran Council 
which met from 1512 to 1517. The Fifth Lateran Council. L-A-T-E-R-A-N. Uh, and you can see from the date here, 1512 to 1517, that is actually well before there was any Lutheran movement. And this is one of the earliest calls for reform. Uh, one of the statements that came out of this council, this Lateran Council in 1512, was a call for the reform of the church, quote, in its head and its members. Famous quote. You ought to know that. Circle it. Reform of the church in its head and members. Reform in its head and members. Now, what's that talking about? Well, in effect, it's talking about a, re a reforming of the papacy as well as and particularly they're concerned about the cardinals, the episcopate. They felt there were a whole lot of abuses at those two points and there needed to be some corrections made in terms of the way the papacy conducted itself and the way the bishops conducted themselves. They set forth a number of goals that needed to be achieved in order for there to be reform in the church. I'll mention them very briefly. Some of the goals of the Fifth Lateran Council, a reform council. First, a bishop needed to be a godly person. <laughs> uh, he should be someone who was worthy of the office. You see, what had happened, and we talked about this before, and some of the problems in the late medieval setting of the church, people were buying bishoprics. Uh, and popes were selling them. And as a result, you got not the nicest, not the most qualified kinds of people becoming bishops. And so this council says, hey, wait a second, that's not right. We need to have spiritually minded men who are bishops. Let's, let's make that a goal, gang. That's one of them. Another one. Uh, and this is very much related, but it has to do with cardinals in particular, that they too ought to adopt a more moral lifestyle. I think I read to you a quote from someone who visited Rome, and he talked about the prelates, uh, the cardinals, uh, having all kinds of illicit relationships uh, with, with, uh, with women, and having children, and in some cases, celebrating the marriages of their children in Rome. Uh, the Fifth Lateran Council, before the Reformation, said, hey, our cardinals need to be moral men. And the other major thing that they said, still very general now, is that they need to stop making so many exceptions to the rules. I mean, the great example of this, to my mind, is the exception granted to Henry VIII to marry his brother's widow. Now, that's, that was very much in violation of standard church law. A man, whether he's a king or a peasant, is in violation not only of biblical teaching, but of canon law of the church. You're not permitted to marry your brother's widow. Uh, your, your brother marries somebody, he dies, you, you're not then permitted to marry his, his, his wife. Well, Henry VIII petitioned the Pope 
and, had, and was actually granted permission to marry his brother's widow. Which well, that kind of exceptions that if you had enough money, you could get that kind of ruling very often. The people at the Fifth Lateran Council said, that's not right. We have rules. You need to stick by them for everybody. So these are very general, and it's very clear that what's being talked about here are, is our moral reform, is moral reform. They just feel like there's a great deal too much immorality out there. Very noble in its intentions, to be sure, but nothing really came of the call for reform from the Fifth Lateran Council. Not much happened. The significance of this council is the very fact that significant, high-ranking, noble-minded people within the church, apart from any stimulus from, from Luther and others, felt there was a need for reform. That's the main significance. Well, they didn't accomplish anything except to say, hey, it needs change. A second thing we see as a second characteristic of this Catholic Reformation, internal Reformation from within, are new religious orders, reforming religious orders. We talk about Dominicans and Franciscans. Those are religious orders. Well, it just so happens that just at, in this period of time, 1517, 1520, right around in there, you have a number of new religious orders established. And they are established with one basic motive to do it right, to get rid of the immorality that they see in the Franciscans and the Dominicans and the Augustinians. We want to form, why, why do we want to form a new order? Because we want to be moral. We want to set an example of how a religious order ought to be. So these are very much uh, orders that are established to bring about reform in the church. I'll mention a few of them. Well, I'm mentioning three. One, the first one is called the Oratory of Divine Love. Sounds a little kinky, I know. But uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the name of it. The Oratory of Divine Love. Around 1517, again, before Luther emerged on the scene, a group of concerned clergymen, high-ranking cardinal-level bishop-level clergymen, again, were concerned with the level of morality in the church. So they established a new order called the Oratory of Divine Love. And their basic goal was to encourage moral reform in the church. One of their founding members, members later became Pope. And he brought uh, some of those reforms into being. His name was Carafa. C-A-R-A-F-F-A. -A. Good name to know. Dates. 1476 to 1559. Giovanni Carafa. Later became Pope Paul IV. Carafa became Pope Paul IV. He died in 1559. He became Pope in 1555 and was Pope for four years. He was 
the founder or one of the main founders of this group called the Oratory of Divine Love, whose main purpose was to bring about moral reform before Luther emerged on the scene. Crucial point. One of Carafa's good friends was Gitano di Thientin. I think that's the right pronunciation, Thientin. And he formed a religious order called the Theantines in 1524. Uh, still now just about simultaneous with Luther beginning to emerge. Uh, 1524 was too early to know uh, if Luther was going to become a major force that would separate and, and, and uh, uh, completely divide Christendom. Still early days. Uh, so you can't necessarily say that the founding of this particular order was specifically in reaction to Luther. Better to say it's just folks who have real concern, and so they're trying to do something about the, what their concerns are in terms of immorality. Founded in 1524, they took uh, their priests took a vow to poverty, chastity, and obedience, and their focal point was to teach and to preach, as well as social service. But that preaching bit is, is uh, very important to the Theantines. Another new group that emerges are the Capuchins. C-A-P-U-C-H-I-N-S. The Capuchins, founded in 1525 by Matteo D'Abbasio, B-A-S-C-I-O. This is an offshoot of, of the Franciscan order. A group of people felt, Basio in particular, that there needed to be a new order that was focused entirely upon reforming the church. One little tidbit here. Uh, after Basio, one of the generals of this order, this new order, the Capuchins, was a man named Ochino, Bernardino Ochino, O-C-H-I-N-O, O-C-H-I-N-O. And he was one of the great leaders of the reform movement in Italy. Ochino was. And just so happens he was very, very close friends with Peter Martyr Vermigli. Uh, in fact, uh, well, we'll talk about this in just a minute, but when the Inquisition was reinstituted in 1542, Okino and Peter Martyr got on their horses together and fled and became Protestants. But, that, but they theologically did not undergo that much of a change. They were very much concerned about, at least for a few years, of trying to bring the church back to its Augustinian moorings. By 1542, it became pretty clear to them that that wasn't going to happen. So they went the only place they could, and that is to Protestantism. But Okino was very, very famous. He was the Billy Graham of the 1520s and 1530s in Italy. He was the most famous preacher of his day. Uh, Charles V once heard him preach, and he said, That man could make stones weep. Uh, Aquino was, was a, an extraordinary man. He later, in later life, uh, became something of a kook. Uh, but there were a few years there where he was uh, really a powerful Italian. He later on, a later preacher in, in, in uh, 
Roman Catholicism. He apostatized, went to Geneva, and and studied under Calvin. Uh, went to Zurich with there with Peter Martyr and others. Anyway, later advocated polygamy. <laughs> Those Italians, you got to watch them. I tell you, but that's you know, I say that kind of in jest, but it's really true. Uh, Calvin had enormous mistrust of Italians, uh, and partly because the tendency was for all of those people who were Italians who left Rome and wanted to join Protestantism, a good number of them uh, had very strange theological ideas. People advocating polygamy, anti-Trinitarianism. And so one of the great things that's remarkable about Peter Martyr, this Italian, is that he was so well-respected by Calvin and others. Uh, But anyway, the Italians were, in the mind of of, uh, a lot of the mainstream reformers were very suspect, and generally for good reason. Okay. The key point here is that not only was there a major church council advocating reform, but there, in an effort to bring this about, uh, there were these religious orders that were established to bring about reform as well. The Oratory of Divine Love, the Theantines, and the Capuchins. 1525. 1525, 24, 1517. So these are either just before or simultaneous with uh, Luther. But the key thing to always remember in this is that the uh, founding of these religious orders does not seem to be a response to Luther, which means this is not counter-Reformation, but Catholic Reformation. Then in 1537, there is the establishment of a Reform Commission. Uh, Actually, a little earlier than that. Pope Paul III... Uh, had some weaknesses and had some strengths. But one of the strengths that he had is that he realized that the church needed to make some moral changes in particular. And so he appointed a group of cardinals to a commission. And they were to make recommendations about how the church, the Catholic church, ought to change What kinds of recommendations could this group make to get them to change? That was the major goal. Uh, The man that Pope Paul III pointed to head this commission was Gasparo Contarini. Contarini. He is... uh, Not enough has been written on this man. He is very significant. Uh, when you're trying to talk about reform movements from within Catholicism. I've been very intrigued by him. And there's been a new book actually written on Contarini by a scholar, Elizabeth Gleason. And she's done a, a fine work. I need to get a hold of that book myself. But anyway, very, very significant. He had been a senator in Venice. But Pope Paul elevated him to the, to the status of cardinal, from being a layman to a cardinal. He didn't have to work his way up through the hierarchy. But he was always known as a very a godly man, very concerned about the church. And so, in 1535, he was made a cardinal. And he headed up this reform commission. One other thing to note about Contarini is, I think it was in 1517, he had what amounted to a spiritual conversion. Uh, he talks about 
uh, this just dramatic change in his life. Uh, and it appears to have been very, very genuine because his life thereafter changed and he devoted himself to the service of the Lord. Uh, he also read Luther and appreciated some things about Luther. In particular, his doctrine of justification. Contarini wrote, No one can at any time justify himself through his works. We must be justified through the righteousness of another, that is, of Christ. Now, that's not exactly justification by faith alone, but it's pushing forward to that. Uh, Contarini was suspected of having been a secret Lutheran because he had such a strong view of justification. Uh, and he was a strong advocate. And later on we'll see in another context where he essentially accepted many of the basic elements of the Lutheran view. Under Contarini's direction, this commission of 1537 produced a document called the Concilium de Amendanda Ecclesia. I'll spell that because I don't think it's very clear up there. Concilium, C-O-N-S-I-L-I-U-M, Concilium de Amendanda, E-M-E-N-D-A-N-D-A, Ecclesia, E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A. That is probably one of those kinds of things you want to circle and put a star above it. If I were to ask you, what is the famous document uh, that came out of the, the Reform Commission of 1537 headed by Cardinal Contarini, that would be what I was looking for. <laughs> what, this, uh, what this means is advice concerning the reform, the emendation of the church. The document states, listen to this, it's a clear call for reform in the church. And listen to how strong the language is. Flatterers have led some popes to imagine that their will is law. That they are owners of all the benefices. So that they are free to dispose of them as they please without any taint of simony. Which is the buying and selling of church offices. This conception is the Trojan horse by means of which numerous abuses have penetrated into the church. You get a sense these guys are serious? Uh, it's pretty clear. They made the following recommendations, not unlike those of the Fifth Lateran Council. I'll mention six of them. These are recommendations for reform uh, of the church from Contarini's commission, the Concilium de Amendanda Ecclesia. First, the Pope should ordain only qualified bishops. We've heard that before. The second thing is that the bishops should take their pastoral responsibilities seriously. They are to be shepherds of God's people. They are not to seek personal fortune, as so many were. So, first, qualified bishops. Secondly, 
Bishops need to take their pastoral role very seriously. Third, bishops had to live in their diocese. I think I mentioned to you earlier that some bishops would be appointed and receive all this income from their little domain and never actually set foot in that diocese. You can't be a very good shepherd if you're not there. So this, uh, this group says, hey, you've got to stay where you're appointed. You'll find this interesting, the fourth one. Indulgences should be granted only in very exceptional circumstances. The very fact that indulgences is included in this list suggests that this commission is not unaware of Martin Luther. Enough of a controversy arose in 1517 and then again with Bernard Sampson in Zurich that these uh, cardinals and others were aware that indulgences is a problem and that in fact there are abuses out there on this question. A fifth thing, again this sounds a lot, very much, very Protestant. It's a call for more education of the clergy. Protestants were saying precisely the same thing. It's no good to have uneducated clergy. And then the sixth thing is moral reform of the priesthood. No more concubines. So it's a very strong document. They wrote, Rest assured... And he's talking to the Pope now. Rest assured that nothing will disarm the calumnies, calumnies of the Lutherans and intimidate the King of England, who had by then apostatized, more effectively than a reform of the curia and the clergy. The attempt to justify all the actions of all the popes would be an arduous and, in fact, an endless undertaking. We cast no stones at your predecessors, but from you the world expects better things. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're pointing right at the Pope and the office and the people who occupy that office. So, uh, this is pretty serious business. I, one little interesting tidbit is that Philip McNair, who's a professor at Cambridge and wrote the first and the best book on Peter Martyr Vermeer, he speculates that Peter Martyr was a young theologian who was a consultant, a theological consultant to this commission. Uh, he can't prove it conclusively, but his arguments are cogent. And I, I, I think he may very well be right. So Peter Martyr was involved in what I think we can call a reform movement within Catholicism. It existed. One last thing to say here is that when you get down to this point, we're talking 1537, I point out to you there's, a, there's an awareness of Luther in this. These previous things, you don't see that so much. But here you have what I, I consider this, this point here, 1537, something of a transition from Catholic reform to counter-reform. There is a shift around this time. 
And I think this epitomizes that shift, a movement from an internal reform movement generated by a noble desire to fix the things that are wrong, and now they're starting to respond to the charges made by Luther. Anyway, the key point that I want to end on here is that this is a transition period right now. Uh, and people, in fact, people on this commission, like Contarini, had actually read Luther. And they've taken him to heart. I mean, they see him as someone who's saying, yes, there are problems in the church that need to be changed. And so they can, they can resonate with that. What you find interesting is that Carafa, for example, uh, before Luther has found the oratory of divine love, he is also on this commission. So the same people who are involved in what I call Catholic Reformation, even before Luther, are now becoming prominent and involved in this as well. So, so it, there really is a good reason for talking about this being a transition point. Because you have people from involved in these up here now becoming involved in this Reform Commission. And now we come to the Counter-Reformation. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.